Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I'm just going to dive right in this morning. Yeah? I got permission? Good. Good. It matters how you live your life. Would you agree? It matters how you live your life and how it's great to be saved. Amen? It is great to be saved. But don't... Now listen. Don't neglect how you live your life thinking, I have all I need. Don't live your life that way. If you take that attitude now, that I am saved and it doesn't matter how I live my life, you lack of following Christ faithfully, and that might result in a family member, a friend, a co-worker, not accepting Christ in their life. I believe it would be terrible if the way I live my life prevented someone from coming to know our Lord and Savior. Right now, it sounds good that I am going to heaven. Would you agree with that? Sounds good, right? But I believe that when Jesus hands out rewards... For how you lived, you would have wished you have done more in this life to store up those treasures in heaven. I believe that when Jesus assigns us places of service in his kingdom, then we would have wished that we have done more in this life to be able to have a greater place of service in his kingdom. Would you agree with me there? Okay. Well, Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount to store up treasures in heaven. The Apostle Paul testified that all he had gained in this life, he counts as loss for knowing Christ. He says the real value of life is knowing Jesus and serving him while we have breath. The Apostle Peter talked about the importance of our obedience to God because he has set up an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you and I. Still with me? So what I'm actually hearing when I read this and I let it saturate my life is that salvation should not be enough. In our life, salvation should not be enough in our life. We should want to live a Christ centered life. I should want to live big for Christ. Paul lived big for Christ. Peter lived big for Christ. And every one of us in here this morning should try to live big. For Christ. But I can tell you from personal experience, it is not an easy task, is it? It is not an easy task. In the world that we live in today, we have so many things competing for the center of our attention in that stage of our life that sometimes Jesus is delegated to a side stage. We forget who put us here in the first place, and we put him second. 
And I would hope that you would ask yourself today and this morning this question. Is Jesus center stage in my life? Is my life a Christ-centered life? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're not so sure. So I want to spend my time with you this morning sharing what I believe is a Christ-centered life and what that actually looks like. And then you can decide for yourself, is my life Christ-centered or not? First thing I would say is a Christ-centered life sees Jesus as the source of everything in your life. Everything. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says this, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now notice, the scripture does not say that God shall supply some of your needs, nor does it say that God shall supply most of your needs. It says God supplies them all. God supplies them all. You would think that God, being the source of everything, would be an easy concept for us to grasp. Can anybody here think of something that you do that God uh, isn't the source of? Our very lives, our very breathing, our sleeping, our working, the protection of your family, the food on your table are all the result of God. So what should that tell us? It says, if I am Christ-centered, if Jesus is always on our minds, and it constantly comes to our mind that God has done this for us, then he has done that for us. Period. No one else. But let me tell you what happens to us, especially slowly over time. We switch the source from God to ourselves. We begin to think that we are doing it ourselves. We begin to think less about Jesus as we go through our day-to-day -day activities and more about what we are accomplishing. I am the one that got that promotion that the boss just gave me, or I am the one who put in the extra hours. I am the one that got the boss to notice the quality of my work. And pretty soon, that self-sufficiency that pushed God from the center of your life turns into self-pride. In other words, look what I have done. Look what I was able to accomplish. Me, 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 me. And when we do that, God is moved even further center stage in your life to one of those smaller stages on the side. We begin to forget about what Christ is doing for us. And it is all about what I am doing for myself. You see, God gave the Israelites a warning about that type of thinking. And we've read about this in previous weeks. 
And I believe that by warning them, God is also warning us. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8, 11 through 14. You can turn there now. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. It says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. I ask this. Can that happen to us and we forget God? Yes. It surely can happen just like it did with the Israelites. So we must remain focused on being Christ-centered. And the second point of that, a Christ-centered life primarily focuses on the person of Jesus Christ, not the rules of our faith. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says this, that I may know him, that I may know him. So it is important that we remain Christ-centered. There ought to be a sticker that we have. I mean, a lot of people like stickers and they put them on their cars. They put them in a lot of different places. But I think there should be a sticker on the front door of every Christian home that says, Make room for Christ in your Christianity. Make room for Christ in your Christianity. I'm afraid that's a lot of people, they get so caught up in the, the do's and the don'ts of their beliefs that if they would just substitute that with a religion-centered life for a Christ-centered life, we'd be a lot better off. The Jewish faith, of the Old Testament substituted a relationship with Yahweh in lieu of the do's and don'ts of their faith. And that's what makes the Pharisees so powerful. They were the tellers of the rules. That same thing has happened in the New Testaments. There are churches that are so focused on the rules that they forgot the person of Jesus Christ. And individual Christian people have been known to take the focus of Christ and put it on the rules. If you have done that, you are in good company. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, I got caught up in the do's and don'ts of the Jewish faith. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. 
But then he goes on in verse 7, and all these things I count for lost for Christ. You see, now Paul is talking the person of Jesus Christ. He saw his error. But he went beyond that. He not only recognized it, but he corrected it. If you focus on the rules over the person of Jesus Christ, are you willing to correct it? Are we willing to correct it? We also know that a Christ-centered life wants no one to get the glory except Christ. So we focus our energy there. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and we are created. A Christ-centered life has one goal. And that is Jesus gets the credit. I love it when after a football game, when a player is interviewed and they're on the field and the field announcer comes over and the first thing that they say is, I give my performance today to God. He is the reason I am here. He is the reason I was able to perform the way that I did. And he gives that performance to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But then, contrast that for a bit, we see the politicians on TV. And we're getting close to an election time, so we're going to see this more and more. But then there's those interviews with those politicians and nine out of ten of them want to give credit to themselves for something that they have done or some law that they passed. So as it gets closer to that election time, they want you to know all about it, all about their accomplishments. So we as Christians, are we going to be more like the, and they're not all this way, but are we going to be more like those football players when the first thing that's asked of us, we give the glory to God? Or are we going to give the glory right back to ourselves when it's not deserved? In a Christ-centered life, Christ has to get the glory. A Christ-centered life handles the troubles of this world with hope. Understand that. We don't handle it with um, frustration. We don't handle it with fear. We handle it with hope. That's what we cling to. A life that is not Christ-centered will sometimes fall apart when dealing with these situations. The um, Understand that there's a difference when we deal with these problems. A Christian will deal with it the way that they deal with it. The non-Christian will deal with it the way they do. There's a difference. We have hope. We have hope. That is the difference. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope 
that is in you with meekness and fear. And then in 1 Peter 1.4, Peter described this hope as a living hope. The hope inside of a Christian is Christ. That is our hope. And we know that whatever the outcome, God is in control. And that he has plans for us. And spoiler alert, we win. More so, we don't win. God wins. Jesus Christ wins. The unbeliever cannot see how this is going to turn out to good. In John's Gospel, the 17th chapter, verse 18, Jesus says this, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus says that the Father sent him into this world, and the word sent did not mean go down to earth and check out the places that you would like to see. This wasn't a vacation or an opportunity for Christ to uh, go to an all-inclusive and hang out and uh, do what he does. No, God sent Jesus for a purpose. God sent him here for us. The word sent implied more that the idea that Jesus was a man on a mission that must be accomplished, must be accomplished. He came from heaven to earth for a specific purpose. And we know if we are students of the Bible... That mission was to die for our sins and through his resurrection to open the door for us to gain entrance into heaven, to spend eternity with him and the Father forever. Forever. But that is only half of the verse. The other half is about us. Jesus says that he has sent us into the world. And if God sent Jesus into the world, implied a mission to be accomplished, that Jesus sending us into the world implies that we have a mission to be accomplished. So what is that mission? You and I know from the beginning, God desired Adam and Eve and all of mankind that followed to have a relationship with him. But with the fall in the garden, that relationship was broken. But God, through Jesus' mission, made a way to renew that relationship. And so, Jesus gave us a mission to bring people to him. And for that reason... The Apostle Peter calls us a holy priesthood. What was the job of the priests in the Old Testament if it was not to bring people closer to Jesus? The Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador um, is someone who provides a link between one country and another. As citizens of heaven, as we are as Christians, we provide a link to those who live on earth that does not know Jesus and to know a little bit about our country. 
Our mission is to bring a lost world to a Savior that loves them. And all those things that we do to lead a person to Christ is our mission activity. That's our purpose. The reality is all Christians don't do what Jesus sent us to do in the world to do. Whether it be some lack of uh, effort. But some Christians are more successful in doing the mission than others. And why is that the case? That's what I want us to look at right now. Why is that the case? Those of us who are successful doing what Jesus sent us to do are not blind or deaf to the needs of the people around us. It's not about I or me. It's about how can I help you in spite of the needs that I have. How can I help you? Daniel Gokey a lot of you know who he is, but he's a Christian singer that you hear often on the radio. And he sings a song, We All Need Jesus. And I'm not going to sing because I'd like you to stay for the remainder of the time. So, But the words say this. Listen, listen to these words. Everybody needs a Savior. Even the ones who think they don't. We've got stuff we hide deep down inside. There's so much that we don't show. Yeah, it's just a wounded world we live in. It's really not the way it's supposed to be. Isn't that the beauty of redemption? It changes everything. We are all broken people. Don't we all need Jesus? Yeah. Every moment of our lives, 24, 365... Our human is equal. Don't we all have our weaknesses? Hey, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody needs that grace. We all need Jesus. Don't we all need Jesus? There are family members in your own family that are lost and need Jesus. Do you see it? There are people who work side by side with you who are lost and need Jesus. Do you see it? There are friends who are very close to you who desperately need Jesus. Do you see it? There are neighbors next to us who are down the road who are lost. And desperately need the love of Christ. Do we see it? Jesus says it this way. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready white for the harvest. Those who are successful doing mission and are doing their mission correctly, don't see them as family members. They don't see them as co-workers or friends or neighbors. They merely see them as a person needing Christ. So, 
We tell you plainly as possible. If you don't see them as needing Jesus, you will never successfully do the mission that Jesus sent us to do. Those who are successful doing what Jesus sent us to do not only see the need, but they are moved out of compassion to do that mission. And they want to do something about it. Listen to the words of the psalm written by King Solomon about how the Savior to come would be moved out of compassion. Psalm 72. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. So what King Solomon is saying essentially is that the Messiah to come will not only see the needs of the people, but that he will also be moved out of compassion to do something about it. Most of us here can see out of both eyes. I say some, because some I wonder. Some of you walk in a circle. No, I'm just kidding. We have the ability to see. We know what lies before us. Is it pleasant? Not always. But it is what God has sent us here to do. To recognize the problems. To recognize the people who have a need for Christ. But then we go a little bit further. We get moved out of compassion to reach these people. This is why we're doing VBS. There are kids and families who have not been exposed to the gospel message. And we have an opportunity this week, a huge opportunity to expose them to that, to allow God to work through us to reach those kids, and not only reach the kids, but the parents that are bringing them, or the the guardians, or the grandparents, whoever it may be, they're going to have an opportunity to see Christ in action. It is wanting to see that a person is lost. It is another thing to do something about it. And I know all the excuses because I've used them myself. It's too hard to tell a family member about Jesus. I am in a hurry. I don't have time to share Jesus. I'm not good at it. Let someone else do it. If I tell them, then they might get mad at me for being so personal. We have to see the need. We have to be moved out of compassion to meet that need. But it goes even further than that. Those who are successful doing what Jesus sent us to do, not only to see the need, but to be moved out of the compassion to do something about it, but then we must believe by faith that the Father will draw that person to Christ. 
don't go into it thinking, I'm going to expose them. And then once, once we've done that, you're on your own. No. We have the belief and the faith that God is going to reach into that person's life and make them whole. And we come alongside them. And we experience that journey with them. We become a part of it, not because it's something that we have to do or it's the Christian prerequisite. We do it because we're moved to do so. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is not my job as the pastor to save anyone because I cannot save anyone. But I do have to see the need. I have to be moved with compassion to tell people about Christ. But it is God who draws that person to Jesus. It is God who does that job. If you are saved today, it is because the Father drew you to Jesus and you accepted it. My mission is to see the need. Be moved to tell and by faith believe that God will do the rest. The people who brought you to Christ, they were moved with compassion to do something about it. They knocked on the door of your home, inviting you to church with them more times than you'd like to count. They answered your questions about God. But on that date, it was God the Father that drew you to Him. And we all have an invitation. And an invitation is all about the Father drawing you to the Son. He may be drawing you to His Son in salvation. He may be drawing you closer to His Son by letting go of a sin that is pushing you away from Him. But no matter what the Father is saying to you, it's about drawing you closer to the Son. To live big in our Christian life. We must remember that we are sent into this world on a mission. And our mission is to see that everyone needs Jesus. Then to be moved with compassion. To introduce that person to Christ. And then by faith to believe that the Father will draw them to Jesus. Now that is living big. Do you live big? I find too many Christians live their lives every which way other than a big way. Some are timid about their Christianity. Some are weak in their Christianity. And some are apathetic about their Christianity. And all those ways of living your Christianity are not what God has called you to do. We are to live our Christian life big. Jesus says, live more abundantly. So I began to share with you this morning, what are those common things that 
Christians possess that make life big. First, they fight hard to keep Christ as the center point of their life. There are things that come into our life that try to take center stage and push Jesus back. But big living Christians fight to keep Christ as the center. And secondly, big living Christians, they stay focused on the mission to bring others to Christ. This world wants to distract us. And our flesh wants to make excuses of why we cannot tell others about Christ. But big living Christians overcome these obstacles and share the good news of Christ. Christians living big seem to have these things in common. But they also have one other thing that they have in common. And that is that they live a life that is devil-resisting. They live a life that is devil-resisting. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 12. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So as big living Christians, when things come against them, they know the source of their strength. So what do we do? We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Another question for you. How well do you handle problems? How well do you handle problems? And I don't mean uh, what we're going to have for dinner tonight. I mean big problems in your own energy and in your own strength. If you are like me, probably not very well at all. And that should come as no surprise to you because the Bible instructs us to be strong in the Lord. Which tells us very plainly that our strength is not strong enough for us to handle those problems. And we certainly are not good handling any problem that Satan throws our way. Anybody here without sin in their life? No hands? Ah, shocking. How then do we secure the Lord's strength to handle those problems. I think it involves two things. First, it involves of letting go of the outcome of a situation. I know I already lost most of you because that means you're letting go of control. And I know a lot of controlling people in here, and that's okay. I'm right there with you. We have to let go of control. We have to take our hands off. But secondly, we have to put our trust 
am the only one who can do something about the situation. I've got to ask Jesus to put his hands on the situation. Because in life, there are situations that occur in our life that are bigger than us. For example, do you realize that anything that the devil throws at you is bigger than you? Don't ever be fooled into thinking that you can hold your own against the devil. You will lose every time. The devil has power. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And this verse is referring to Satan, and it tells us very plainly that he has power. He has strength. But he is limited. He is limited. He is the prince, the power of the air. The word Power in our scripture from Ephesians is the same word used to describe Satan's power. The word power refers to Jesus' power, except unlike Satan's power, which has a limitation factor, Jesus' power has no limitation. So guess who wins? It is in his power and in his might. So there is no limitation. In other words, Satan may be powerful enough to beat us down, but he will never beat Jesus. Jesus' power always wins over Satan's power. And if we can put our trust in the Lord, he fights that battle for us. The Lord wins. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, in Christ. How often does he lead us in triumph? How often? Always. Always. I would say that's not too bad. That's a pretty good ratio. Always. And Christians who live big know how to put their trust in him. When things come against them, they know who the enemy is. Why do we say that? When the devil brings a problem into existence, he knows how to put the blame on something or someone other than himself. He is a master at not taking responsibility for the problem. I would say that we're pretty good at not taking responsibility for our problems. It is not just a problem between you and the family member or the co-worker or the neighbor. Satan has gotten in there and is creating the conflict between the, the two parties. If both family members can bring the issue to the Lord, it would be resolved. If all of us would come together bringing our issues to the Lord, we could solve anything. Anything. Someone who has been going to a church for a while leaves and starts saying that the church is not loving. I don't want anything to do with it. The conflict is not between that person and that particular church. Somewhere in that conflict, the devil is doing something. 
If the church would reach out to that person and that person would reach out to that church and come together in prayer, that problem would be resolved. But this is what I do know. The devil never wants you to bring Jesus into a relational conflict. Because the devil knows that if Jesus gets involved, relationships would be restored. Do not think Satan causes only relational conflicts, though. Satan causes much more than that. He can cause physical problems. I believe that those who are addicted to drugs, it was Satan that had a hand in introducing that person to those drugs. Look at the outcome of drugs. Lives are destroyed. Families are broken. The addict might end up in jail. That is Satan's kind of work. But if you ask the user why you started using, and you will always hear some other reason other than Satan. Satan can cause mental problems. He knows exactly what will cause you to worry and have anxiety. It is reported that 70% of the people that go to the general practitioner are suffering from anxiety. And people always blame their anxiety on what they are worrying about. I never hear Satan is doing this to me. If you're going to fight a battle, and this is why we're teaching this this year. If you're going to get into the battle, you better know who your enemy is. And you better be prepared. You better be prepared. You better know who your enemy is. And as big living Christians, when things come against them, the first thing they do is check if they are fully dressed for the battle. Are you fully dressed? Have you put on the full armor of God? When a call comes in to the fire department, what is the first thing they do? They put on their gear. They get ready for that battle. When a call comes in to the police department that there is a sniper in town, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to get ready for that battle. They're going to put on that bulletproof armor. They're going to do the things to prepare themselves for the battle at hand. When a Christian faces a crisis in his or her life, we never look before we go. We never check to see if we are fully dressed for that battle. And that's where we fail. But God says, put on the full armor of God. And so we must do that. Suppose the firefighter forgot to put on his oxygen tank. And he goes into that fire not prepared. Suppose the SWAT member forgot that bulletproof vest. He's going into that conflict not prepared. And when God tells us to put on the full armor of God, and you leave out one of those items, we will be ill-prepared for that battle. So as Christians living big, we also know that we need to check that we have 
the full armor of God on. Amen? And that's how we resist the devil. We realize as Christians that I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus. I know that the devil is probably behind my problem. And I also make sure that I am fully dressed for that battle. That's how you live big in God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Dave. I have the kids stand up. Kids, stand up. That it? Okay, those young at heart stand up. <laughs> I was going to have Cooper and Tucker, would you guys lead us in the first verse of this? Okay, note. You ready? Pray. if you're willing to. Everyone who's involved with VBS, if you would come up front, please. Those workers, I'd like you to come on up, please. Stand in front. And I'm going to ask for the church to pray over these for this week because we are going into battle this week. And we're going to be talking about our gear that we need to gear up for in order to present the gospel and in order to introduce those to Christ. So we recognize what we need to do. But we're being moved by compassion to do this. But this morning as we pray over them, we're also going to believe and have faith that through these individuals and through the Holy Spirit, God is going to reach someone this week that needs to know what it is to have a relationship with Christ. Amen. So as we pray this morning, I want you to pray for these individuals as well. And it looks like half the church is up here, so amen to that. Amen to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your compassion towards us. Lord, as we go into this week, as we begin Vacation Bible School, and as we teach about putting on the full armor of God, and what that means, and what that means in our relationship to you. I pray that you will touch the lives of the children that will come. I pray that you will touch the lives of the adults that will bring the kids, that they will see you through all of this, and God, you get the glory. Lord, we're so thankful and blessed to have all these who are involved, who will facilitate that. Lord, we are a blessed church. And I'm so happy that we are providing an opportunity for those to get to know you. Bless us this week and all of our endeavors. Lord, I pray that many kids will be touched by your word. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you at VBS. Please come, be a part of it, see what's going on, all right? The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.